0: episode of the Hitchcock Minute, where each week, movies by minute hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest. It's Monday, and that means a new podcasting team, and that means we'll be here all week. And who are we, you ask? Well, I'm Brett Stillo from Five Minutes of Trouble and Five Minutes of Bonsai, and I'm here with my co-host, also from those same two podcasts coincidentally, Mr. Josh Horowitz.
1: Hi, Brett. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Good to hear we're from you, We're back in the saddle. We're, we're recording again. It's been a while. I started to calculate when the last time we did a podcast together, and I started to get sad. So it's, it's been too long. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad we worked it out. You know, yeah, I'm but... glad we were finally able to get rid of the lawyers. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm sorry for all those tweets. And uh, also the horse head. I got a little worked up. So I'm glad we're together
1: again and uh, we can do this awesome movie. Yeah. Well, thanks to Jim O'Kane for for bringing us back to help out with this new podcast. This is going to be a fun thing to discuss. A little bit different than what we're used to discussing before, but always good to to be in the podcast seat with you. So I'm looking forward to this. Me too, me too. And let, let me ask before we get into this minute, uh
0: Alfred Hitchcock and North by Northwest. Uh what's your what's your history on it? What's your what's your take on Hitchcock? A little little bit of background if
1: I may ask. Yeah, uh I I had heard of this film uh growing up but never really saw it until after I was in college. There was a time long ago when I wanted to be a film director and so I went to UCLA and I tried to get into the film school over there. And took many different film classes. Uh, I, I'm sure we must have seen at least one or two Hitchcock films, and we're actually analyzing it for all the all the filmic qualities that you look for in these things. Uh, but I, I don't remember seeing North by Northwest until probably when I was out of college, and you could just rent anything you wanted to on Netflix. And I, I specifically remember that this was one of the one of the DVDs that I I figured I'd see along with some other Hitchcock films, and was not disappointed. Uh, I there was a time when I kind of felt that movies that came before say the 1970s or even 1980s were like "Eh," you know kind of slow not that very interesting but but this one uh, great performances just neat uh uh, neat locations and uh, action and spy stuff It, it very much felt like like a spy movie it wasn't exactly what I was expecting from your your typical thriller Hitchcock and uh I enjoyed it. That said, I think I've only seen it maybe once or twice. I have a feeling you've probably seen this much more than I have. No, no, my, my
0: history with uh, both Alfred Hitchcock and this movie are kind of the same. Uh, you know, being a little bit older than you, I can remember seeing reruns of his anthology shows on television. Uh, so I, I sort of knew Alfred Hitchcock first as a as a funny character, a personality, a guy with a funny hmm. voice who would sort of make jokes. And as a little kid, I think I got him confused with Uncle Fester on The Addams Family. Yeah. <laughs> but like you, I became an adult and got interested in filmmaking. And yeah, everybody's, oh, Hitchcock this, Hitchcock that. In My 20s, I saw a whole slew of Hitchcock films and enjoyed them, but maybe didn't really appreciate them for the craftsmanship because what struck me Mm. about this film is yeah it's it was made 60 years ago having seen (laughs) other movies from that area you compare North by Northwest and you think oh wow this is a race car this uh, you know we could talk about uh, the movie that that uh, kind of outdid North by Northwest at the Oscars Ben-Hur movie that won like 11 oscars but that Uh seems like a kind of just a slow moving you know hollywood epic for its time when north by northwest seems still seems very modern and in a sense relevant but yeah otherwise i haven't seen it that many times myself i've probably seen it as many times as you but in preparing for these minutes uh all i've been thinking of is north by northwest I, <laughs> coincidentally, and we'll talk about this in some upcoming minutes, I took a, a train ride. Uh, unfortunately, I did not have a, a gray silk suit and red sunglasses, so I missed that aspect <laughs> of it. But I can I can relate a little bit to uh,
1: the upcoming minutes. But let's get into it, shall we? All right. And and we're doing this minute by minute this time, not five minutes at a yeah, time. I, it's weird. We've got to hone our... Our focus is very, very succinctly on these minutes. OK, succinct. Mm. Got it.
0: It's zoom. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this is minute 41. Yeah, 41. So what do what these minutes
1: start with and end with?
0: Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, it begins with the professor addressing his colleagues at the United States Intelligence Agency, very realistic sounding organization. And it ends with the professor. Addressing his colleagues at the United States Intelligence Agency.
1: Yes, this this is a an exposition explosion minute. Yes, I seem to recall we had something like that in Big Trouble Little China.
0: Yes, yes, and but you know I got to say, yeah, this is exposition. Boy, is it ever exposition! But I I feel like this is uh, you know there's a right way and a wrong way to do exposition. We could definitely point out movies where there's bad exposition. Uh, we can we have emotional scars from those movies. But this, I think, is <laughs> some really well-done exposition. They, they kind of do an info dump here. We get a lot. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I think, as maybe some of our colleagues in the previous 40 minutes have pointed out, we've had 40 minutes of, what? What's going on? And we're, <laughs> we're feeling like Roger Thornhill. George Kaplan? Huh? Uh, so I, I feel like, one... Uh, this exposition is well-timed. The audience can take a breather. Hopefully nobody uh, went to the bathroom. <laughs> uh, you, Yeah, you get a lot here. Um, but one thing I think is interesting, it moves in its own way. I think Kitchcock was aware of the fact he was doing a lot of info dump, and he has uh, Mr. Leo G. Carroll, who here is not over a barrel, and a Tarantula <laughs> is nowhere to be seen, that's another movie entirely, but you notice uh, you know the professor is is pacing, he's fidgeting, he goes by the window, he sits down, he's uh, you know as he's talking, he he sort of needs to move, so that kind of helps add a little energy to this sequence.
1: Yeah, no that that's true. We get a a bit of camera movement, we get a bit of character movement. Uh, you know the the interesting thing I noticed here. And we actually see uh, the window at one point. And so we actually do see the Capitol and we see Washington, D.C. It, it kind of looks, though, that that probably is some sort of a projection. Yeah. Do you think that they were actually, they, they, they couldn't have been there. That must have been like early blue screen, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, classic rear screen projection. That's, that's mm-hmm. maybe one little, it's actually kind of, I think it's quaint uh, when you look back at a movie made in 60s, uh, made, not made in the 60s, but made 60 years ago, uh, they shot a lot of it in a studio, probably in, somewhere in Culver City. <laughs> and uh, I think there was a concession of, yeah, good enough. We'll just, uh, you know, throw a rear projection of Washington, D.C. Uh, it, it sort of shows to me at least they tried, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's a moving image. You know, sometimes yeah. when you watch an old movie, you'll see just an obvious painted backdrop of a cityscape.
1: <laughs> well, they make sure in this case to be able to show the slats of the window. So, yeah, you know, that sort of helps to, I guess, mask any of the movement that as it goes by.
0: Yeah. So, you know, today that shot would be a lot more realistic. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of fun to see. Oh, yeah. You know. It's it's an old rear screen projection. It, it reminds me of uh, the gags they did with rear screen projection in the airplane movies.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they'll, they'll just show some random stuff in the background. Yeah,
0: yeah, you could you could have very easily had I don't know uh, a, a, a Roman chariot race in the background
1: or something like that. But uh, <laughs> there you go. But later in the film, and when, when we're going to get to the train, I I I kind of feel that that might actually be on the moving train. I'm not sure. Well, I guess we'll get to that when we get to that.
0: You know, you you figure they maybe took a little more care with that. Maybe this is just Hitchcock saying, oh, we're in a room. There's five people talking. Let's let's add some something interesting. You know, Mm -hmm. in a sense, it it gives the audience a chance to look out the window. Boy, this is a real boring briefing. Oh, hey, look, a new Dodge drove by.
1: (laughs) It's a sunny day. I, I wish I was out by the Washington Monument taking a walk. But then you had an interesting comment before about, you know, if somebody were to take a bathroom break, if they had missed this section and they went to the bathroom, that would make an interesting movie, too, (laughs) just because then you'd be totally in the dark going into the the following scenes. Yeah.
0: Again, this is a big exposition, but it's a big payoff. Mm -hmm. We find out in this minute that George Kaplan is made up. He does not exist. He is the man who never was. Yes. We had clues to that earlier on. What's I think it's more like who is this George Kaplan? Uh, Roger wonders that. Now we know there is no George
1: Kaplan. He mm-hmm. is uh, a non-existent secret agent. And I mean, they went to a lot of extent for this too. I mean, the the hotel room with the the suits that were brought in and everything and uh you know they they went out of their way but they do talk about that in these minutes
0: yeah yeah they they kind of lay it out and we sort of understand now how poor Roger got involved in this plot and uh you know it's it's funny to me because in earlier minutes when we meet Van Damme and his men they are so smug and arrogant you know James <laughs> Mason being James Mason uh but but here we see they have been duped yeah they have they have taken it hook, line, and sinker. So uh, not so smart, are you, Van Dam?
1: Though we will learn later that, uh, that perhaps there was another spy, or possibly two that that wasn't so lucky. Yes, to
0: quote Obi Wan Kenobi, there is another. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! To quote Yoda, there is another. Another, there is yes. Josh, I'm sorry, we're gonna get letters. Oh, <laughs> we're gonna get letters. In this exposition, there's something very interesting going on here, to me. Yes, uh, as you said, you know, this is a, in some ways, maybe the first modern spy movie, a, a template for the James Bond movies and mm. uh, thrillers to come in the '60s and '70s. Uh, so, and I'm sure some of our colleagues have talked about how this movie has influenced James Bond. But in this moment, we can see how James Bond influenced North by Northwest because this plot Mm -hmm. uh, that the professor and his colleagues have come up with, this fake George Kaplan, is based on a real-life incident. Are you familiar with Operation Mincemeat? Do tell. Operation Mincemeat, one of the great intelligence operations of World War II. I'm going to try to keep it compressed because I could spend an hour talking about Operation Mincemeat, but it was the same concept of duping the Germans with phony intelligence, a plant, and doing so with a fictional British intelligence officer, a man who did not exist, a man who never was. Uh, I believe his uh, name, the name they came up with was Major William Martin. They, They went so far as to uh, secure a corpse. Hmm. It's, a, it's a little vague. No one's quite sure where they got the corpse, but they had a body. They put him in an army uniform.
1: Thus, the mincemeat.
0: Yes, the mincemeat. And uh, he was shipped out in a submarine and placed in the water near the coast of Spain. So he would wash up in neutral Spain. Hmm. Spanish authorities would find this body and turn him over to the Germans. And that's exactly what happened. I believe the information was uh, a ruse about the impending invasion of Sicily. A journalist who knew Hitchcock told Hitchcock about Mincemeat. At that point, uh, a movie had been made just a few years before, The Man Who Never Was. So I think this this whole uh, British intelligence operation was probably becoming declassified and something people were talking about. But here's the interesting thing, Josh. Operation Hmm. Mincemeat, there was a whole team of intelligence officers putting this elaborate scheme together. And one of them was a British naval officer, Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming. Aha. The same Ian Fleming. The, coincidentally, same Ian Fleming, who wrote a few uh, pop boiler novels you may have read. So I, I find it very interesting that, in a sense, one of the writers of this <laughs> movie is Ian Fleming, <laughs> By, you know, some distance and some time, but it it starts with Ian Fleming and then we have a nice kind of full circle here.
1: Actually, speaking about the writing in this, I, I did pull up the North by Northwest screenplay uh, and noticed that there were some discrepancies between what was originally written and what made it onto the film. And there's a couple of interesting things here just about this scene uh, the, the screenplay that I'm looking at was from October of 58. I think the movie came out sometime in 59, so there were some, probably some revisions. Uh, but they actually have names for everybody around the table. Now, we know the professor, uh, but uh, apparently their, their names are based on their cover jobs when they're not at Central Intelligence. There's the cartoonist, the stockbroker, the housewife, the reporter, and the professor. Oh, that is amazing. I got to admit,
0: I have a copy of that same uh, screenplay. Uh, And thanks to uh, our colleague, Robert E.F. Black, for providing that. Uh, It's really been uh, Mm -hmm. great to look at that. Um, And you're right. Yeah, October 58. But no, I I missed that part that uh, they don't have names. Now, in in the sequence, uh, the woman... Is, is called Mrs. Finley. She's identified.
1: Oh, that's right. She, she has a name, yeah.
0: Yeah, but I think that's very interesting because uh, if you look at World War II intelligence, like the OSS, you know, no, nobody majored in espionage in college. Huh. You know, they, p- these were people of all walks of life. You know, a, a great example is uh, this, uh, this housewife and amateur chef, Julia Child. Mm-hmm. who, uh, no, actually she, she wasn't married yet. Uh, but anyway, she, she was not a spy, but she gets recruited into the OSS in World War II. And <laughs> uh, so it, it does kind of make sense that you'd have you know, a, a college professor. Um, yeah. And, you know, a, a stockbroker to, you know, and probably uh, people from different walks of life to create uh, this George Kaplan character and the, have his and, his backgrounds
1: and you had some interesting info on this professor actor didn't you
0: oh yeah the, the great leo g carroll who once again is not over a barrel <laughs> you know so, some of our friends might not cover this already but we'll we'll do it again leo g carroll uh seasoned english character actor one of those guys who uh came over to the states in the 20s and 30s and just you know Made a career out of being a, a, an older British guy playing doctors and professors and, you know, elder statesmen kind of characters. Uh, he was born in 1886. Wow. He first came to the States in 1924. He had a career that spanned over 40 years. Uh, stage, screen, television, hundreds of roles, including six working for his friend Alfred Hitchcock. This was uh-huh. his last appearance in Hitchcock movie. Uh, I can't name all six, but I know it started with Rebecca in 1940. So uh, mm. they liked working together. Uh, he's, a, he's an interesting looking guy. Uh, yeah. He's,
1: he's kind of scary looking to me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I have a note here that he, he kind of reminded me of the actor Ed Williams, who played uh, the character Ted Olson, who was a scientist from Police Squad and the Naked Gun movies. Oh, yeah. Who is kind of a bit of a Q character as well. Uh neat thing about him is that I've actually met him a few times through uh, some of the sag after meetings that I go to. And he's a wonderful guy. He's in his 90s and he's still working. Oh, that's amazing. That's
0: amazing. Does he have thick eyebrows like Leo G. Carroll? I'll have to look him up on IMDb. <laughs>
1: yeah, I... Uh... A little bushy, very, little very bushy. scientific looking. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, you know, as you said, he played, you know, a, a police laboratory dude, so that makes sense. Uh, I, would you dare ask him if uh, he ever gets compared to Leo G. Carroll? I, I will ask him next time yeah. I see him. <laughs> yeah. One interesting thing about Leo G. Carroll here as the professor is he's probably best known for his television role a few years later as Alexander Waverly. The head of the United Network Command for Law Enforcement from the hit show The Man from Uncle. So that was Uncle, yes. Yeah. That was a a TV version uh, or an attempt to cash in on the Bond craze. So Mm. Leo G. Carroll plays sort of a TV show version of M. Uh, Yet here, uh, before Bernard Lee plays M. Leo G. is M before M. He's being that, you know, scholarly sky master. I say <laughs> scholarly spy master. He could be a sky master. I don't know. Uh, but he's a spy master here. It's also interesting to note he's, he's sort of in that position, but he's, he's a different kind of a spy master. Again, he's more of a, a cerebral academic guy. He's come right. up with this master plan. Uh, you know, M was always, you know, he's a military guy. He was definitely the commander, and he mm. kind of barked out orders. But yeah, it's it's the kind of the spy master character, and Leo G. Carroll is doing him first. So And the interesting thing go.
1: about him, so he, he's an English actor, as is uh, a certain leading man in this film. Uh, yeah, and the interesting thing is that we, we don't really hear British accents, but we do hear a very distinct type of accent from many of these characters and in this room we hear it a lot and that is the transatlantic accent and are you familiar with the transatlantic accent
0: I am familiar with the transatlantic accent but you being a voice actor Perhaps yes. you could uh, you could uh, let the folks at home know a little bit more about the transatlantic accent, please.
1: So it's kind of funny. This is an accent that occasionally they ask voiceover people to, to do today if they want to sound old-timey. It, uh, it's not quite British. It's not quite New England. Uh, but it kind of has that upper crust sound to it. And it was very popular uh, between around the turn of the century, and it kind of fell out of favor in the 40s. But if you listen to radio and, uh, and announcers from a long time ago, they kind of have this, uh, you know, oh, you know, we're going to go and uh, and go to the ball game, And that's what we're going to see. It's it's that type of a voice. And uh, I, I think that the transition to do an American accent was probably easier for a lot of the, the British actors. So they kind of fell into this style. Um and that's what we're hearing here. And I've had a chance to audition for a few, but it, it's not easy to do. <laughs> you you kind of have to put your mind into the the 1930s as you as you talk through it. Uh, but but yeah, listen to Cary Grant do it. Listen to Leo Carroll do it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It, it it's not just uh, an accent. It's also sort of your your choice of syntax and the words. Yes, inflection is important. Yeah, inflections too. and phrases. You know. I, what comes to mind with the mid-atlantic to me are the actresses, katherine hepburn, betty davis, and i don't know who said it but you know you you don't see you don't say really you say rally 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 i do and it, <laughs> that to me is a is a very, you know, early 20th
1: century expression But the funny thing about it is that it it isn't a true accent. It was literally created uh, mainly in schools and and by certain portions of society. Yeah. Because that that makes you sound upper crust.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was an attempt to sound a little more sophisticated. And, Mm. um, you know, it's interesting. I think, you know, today we have uh, English actors who can do perfect American accents. How many times have you been watching uh, a streaming show? And uh you know, you you figure a guy, oh wow, he must be from the south. Nope, nope. He's from London.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hugh Laurie is great. You listen, listen to him his house and you know, he, he's he's perfect in <laughs> his Americanisms.
0: So. Yeah. And you know, I think they I think they revel in you know, trying to sound more American than each other. Hmm. Uh Tom Hiddleston is great at American accents. We could go on and on. Hmm. I, I I, I feel like, you know, this is a different time and a different place. And so, yeah, people wanted to hear um, something that sounded a little more upper crust, a little more sophisticated. So you have Leo G. Carroll as the professor. And you're right. It's not really British, uh, but it's it's like extreme Canadian. And, uh, extreme it, Canadian. Yeah. It does have a certain charm. I, I'm going to put you on the spot, though. You don't have to. You can... You can refuse, but would you care to, to uh, give us a little of your mid-Atlantic?
1: Ah, uh, let's see. Well, if I were going to do a, a monologue, like here would be from Pulp Fiction, so. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the iniquities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak from the valley of darkness. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. <laughs> Except and, then I gotta make sure I don't turn into Howard Cosell, that's the problem. Well,
0: you know, I mean that's kind <laughs> of part of it. In a in a few minutes we're gonna meet Ned Glass and his thick New York accent. And I think that's I think that's part of it. You know, you were you were sort of delving into the Franklin Delano Roosevelt aspect yes. <laughs> of the mid Atlantic. So I felt that yeah, uh, to me that was um, you were doing a newsreel from about nineteen thirty five. Yeah.
1: I kind of have to think that as I do something like that.
0: Yeah, that was a good one. A little technical thing. One thing I've wondered about, you know, when you hear those tones in old movies, Mm -hmm. old radio recordings, I've wondered how much of it is also the microphone.
1: That's part of it.
0: Yeah, like, I, I can't recall, but I imagine with the technology, you're probably getting a voice that's a little more compressed, so... Uh, You know, a joke I used to have is that in the 1930s on radio, everybody sounded like FDR. (laughs) So an interview is, so, Mr. President, what is on your agenda? Well, I'm glad you asked that. (laughs) Let me turn now to the Secretary of State. Thank you, Mr. President. They all had the same voice. And I wondered how much of that was some of its cultural, some of its the geography. um,
1: Yeah, it's kind of a a mixture of both. I mean, you can you can take a filter today and make it sound old-timey, and even if you talk in your regular voice and inflection, you still sort of get that feel. Yeah. But if you mix that with the, the mode of speech, then that, that can really do it, yeah. plus a little bit of static, I suppose. Yeah,
0: and I'm just imagining uh, recording equipment and microphones that I, I'll bet you they were real sensitive and real hot. Yeah. So a T sound would maybe sound like a guillotine. Just whack or something like that.
1: Though I remember uh, when I was I was learning a little bit about uh, microphones and stuff uh, back in the old days when they used to record stuff for radio. You know, they, they had these types of microphones. They were kind of omnidirectional in that uh, you know it, it would be focused in uh, literally like a like an east direction and a west direction because there'd be two people standing there and you could have one on one side, one on the other, and, and get that effect. Uh, nowadays, everybody probably uses these uh, these condenser mics that are um, really good at sort of picking up the entire room. Uh, but the podcast mic I have is a single directional, and then hopefully it sounds okay.
0: You you always sound good. Thank you. You always <laughs> sound good. Anything else for minute 41?
1: Uh, let's see. Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing they talk about is that... Uh, They can't help Roger because apparently it would blow their real spies cover. And I think that that was kind of one of the one of the loopholes that you might get out of this is like, you know, well, can't they help this poor guy? But no, this is the reason they can't. There are other spies on the line here. So I found that that interesting that they threw that in there.
0: Yeah. And that they've they've already lost two people. Uh, You know, it's, it's a reminder. This is the Cold War and this, you know, the stakes are here. We, we saw Roger, uh, he's already narrowly escaped a couple of times, and so it's a reminder, oh, there were two previous agents who were not so lucky. Uh, so these, you know, just it, it, the ruthlessness of Van Damme and Leonard and those other two guys who I don't like at all, <laughs> boy, I hope something bad happens to them. But uh, we shall see. Yeah. So yeah, there are two agents have been lost, and there is... Another agent, who is deep undercover, uh, who uh, is but in who, grave danger. Who could it be? I don't know. Um, I, I'm going to put money down that it's actually Roger's mother. <laughs> the mother. <laughs> yeah, there's something about mother just seems to know a little too much, and she's a little too crafty. And at oh. the ease with which Roger got out of jail, I, I think she's a master spy. Mm, I, have I think. Something there. Yeah. I think she was. I think she. Once upon a time, she was pals with Matahari, so <laughs> that's that's who I think this uh, deep cover agent is. Well, Prove me wrong. We will see
1: <laughs> as the minutes tick on. Uh, yes. So, but yeah, I think that uh, that wraps this up. Why don't you take us home with uh, a little bit about. This podcast,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we invite you, listeners, uh, to look for the Hitchcock Minute podcast over on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, or over on the main site, thehitchcockminute.com. Also, check out our site on Facebook for uh, for fans and fellow podcasters. The Man on Washington's Nose. Gazintai. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. I believe that was the original title. Ah. The working original title Hitchcock wanted to call it "The Man on Washington's Nose." I'd love to see that poster. Mm. Uh, but yes, look <laughs> for "The Man on Washington's Nose" or the the web page. Don't actually look for "A Man on Washington's Nose," uh, but that's our Facebook page. And uh, look for us on Twitter and the Hitchcock Minute. And uh, also, eight hey, look for us. Five minutes of bonsai and five minutes of trouble on some of the same spots. That's right. Can we
1: do a shout-out to 12 Chimes as well? Old-time radio. Yeah, our, our uh, we've been
0: involved with a show with Amy Pabby called 12 Chimes, It's Midnight, where we do old radio shows, or new shows in the tradition of old radio shows. And yeah, we're nasally as heck on that show. <laughs> we should get some old microphones. We totally nailed that sound. So, <laughs> But yeah, please join us tomorrow, where we may be in the same room. That'll be minute 42. And uh, thanks again, and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.
1: Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.